Welcome to the Policy and Planar English Podcast. I'm your host, Helen Laban. Today, we're starting to wrap up our season focused on food as part of healthcare with a look at a food prescription pilot program in the Upper Valley. In our previous episodes, we've talked about two styles of food and healthcare projects. We have projects that are focused broadly on making nutritious food easily and readily available to everyone in a community. Here, healthcare practices play roles like being a familiar place to access food, referring their patients to food programs, and generally helping their community understand connections between diet and a broad range of health outcomes. We also have projects that are focused literally on food as medicine, prescribing foods and dietary changes as a form of treatment for specific diseases, monitoring the clinical results, and adjusting treatment as necessary, an approach that requires regular engagement with clinicians at each healthcare practice. A lot of approaches combine different elements or are within a portfolio of different projects at an organization. The food prescription pilot we're looking at today illustrates that blending. It's at a very early stage, and a lot of the work falls into the general food access category. But they're consciously using this initiative to build the foundation to expand further down the food as medicine path, engaging clinicians as part of the team, working out the logistics of information sharing and tracking in the medical record, and dipping their toes in the water of tailoring food menus to different medical needs. As we look at how this food prescription pilot builds a strong foundation to expand in the future, we'll hit on a lot of themes you've heard already in this series. As a reminder, you can find old episodes and show notes at our website, plainerenglish.org. Okay, let's jump into the project itself. We'll start with the food organization partner. My name is Jennifer Fontaine. I'm the director of operations at the Upper Valley Haven here in White River Junction. She's working with Dartmouth-Hitchcock to provide the food part of the food prescription. So this pilot program that we're working with, Dartmouth-Hitchcock's pediatric program, uh, provides prescription pantry referrals to us at the Upper Valley Haven. And we run a full food shelf ordinarily. And this is an additional program with a specific list of food items that tend to fall on the healthier side and may have specific nutritional requirements based on what the patient and family may need. Typically as a food pantry, we have a wide variety of product available for all of our clients. We provide a lot of whole foods, dairy, um, meats, produce, breads, and then, you know, a multitude of shelf-stable options as well. So we have a wide variety ordinarily, and then adding in options that may meet either a gluten-free need, a dairy-free need, an increased calorie count, vegan diet, low sodium diet is not a huge stretch for us because of the variety of food we already have on hand. And so it's meant purchasing some more items, a variety of items that we hold in stock specifically for this program. The basic foods that support these prescriptions are often on hand, but Jennifer is needed to adjust what's in stock and its quantities. Remember, the food that's easily available for food shelves reflects the food that's easily available overall in our food system. Something like a vegan diet, for all the hype around plant-based food businesses, isn't actually in abundance in our food system. In fact, if every American ate their recommended daily servings of fruits and vegetables, we wouldn't have enough fruits and vegetables to cover the increase. Food prescriptions are just one example of a food shelf working on a project that requires extra effort to make healthy foods readily available to their clients. Gleaning would be another example, which we mentioned last episode, working with people to gradually ease into an altered diet for health reasons without straying too far from familiar foods is a third example, 
something we spent a lot of time exploring in recent episodes. All of these types of projects are in play at Valley Haven. Let's go to the Dartmouth-Hitchcock partners. I'm Chelsea Canavan. I work in population health at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, and I primarily focus there on our food and nutrition programs, so addressing food insecurity and diet-related health needs among our various patient populations. My name is Natalie Romano. I'm the pediatric primary care community health resource specialist within CHAD at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, so it's Children's Hospital of Dartmouth-Hitchcock. Dartmouth-Hitchcock is a network of many different sites, and one of the potential outcomes of this food pilot would be to expand the model across that network. Dartmouth-Hitchcock in Lebanon, which is where I'm based um, and where this pilot program is based, is one of our sites. The Dartmouth-Hitchcock Health System includes several network member hospitals, including Auspec Day Memorial, um, also in Lebanon, Visiting Nurse and Hospice in Vermont and New Hampshire, and other uh, hospital members throughout the state. So kind of a broader reach than just the Upper Valley region. As we've mentioned at least twice now, part of this pilot program is building on systems already in place around food security, while trying out new systems that future phases can themselves build on. So let's talk briefly about the larger context of work at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. Dartmouth-Hitchcock has kind of a larger effort that we've been working on for several years now to address social-related health needs of our patients. This involves screening for social determinants of health, a community health worker program, and other efforts to address needs such as housing, transportation, and food. I work on our food and nutrition programs, and so we've been working to improve and expand our food security screening. We have some other programs, such as shelf-stable food boxes that are available to patients at the clinic in several different clinic locations. We got a grant from the Cigna Foundation to pilot this program together with the Upper Valley Haven. And so it was a great opportunity for us to try another program, another way to reach patients who have food needs and to help address some of those. A note on the food insecurity screening that Chelsea mentioned. They're using hunger vital signs, which you may remember from our earlier episodes. They have that screening fully implemented for their pediatric patients and are now working on making it universal across adult primary care. So this is a really great way to make sure that we are able to identify all of the people who might benefit from a program like this food prescription or other potential resources or referrals that that we're able to make for food needs. Not everybody has the screening in place. I think it is a really great starting point to start thinking about these types of interventions. If you want to hear more about details on food insecurity screening, check out our episodes on that topic at plainerenglish.org. The basic idea is that someone either screens positive for food insecurity as part of a preventive visit or says they would like some help with accessing the appropriate food for their diet. And the next stop is working with a care coordinator, which is where Natalie comes in. In general, my role is to help families that are seen in pediatrics connect with any resource that they might possibly need to improve their health and wellness. So this can include housing, food access, childcare, insurance, transportation, paperwork help, education, pretty much literally anything that can affect health and wellness. So it's a really broad job. And then we also internally have a team to address social determinants of health as a whole. So 
I'm not alone in my area. And it just gives families the capacity to focus on their medical needs or to just focus on kids growing up and being able to thrive. The fact that Natalie works on a range of issues is important as we think about ways to sustain a healthy diet. For the prescription itself, a patient or family will get referred to Natalie either at the end of their medical appointment or in follow-up afterwards. The food prescription is a new option offered to them, along with regular care coordination supports. The overall process is a family comes in, we identify they have a dietary or other food insecurity need. The provider or anyone else in clinic gives me that information in some way. And then from there, if the family is in clinic, I try to see them in the moment just because that to me is the best way to get information to someone and communicate with them. But a lot of times it is after the fact. And so I call the family and get their information that is needed to get entered into their system securely. So there's a secure file transfer tool that the hospital has access to and uses frequently. I send that information about that family's food prescription to Haven, the food pantry that we work with. And then I follow up. I get notified if they go on their own or if transportation is a problem, then normally I'm involved in potentially going for the family to the food pantry to pick up that food. We also have a dietitian on board. So if there's ever a really complex dietary need, like if a family has anyone in chemotherapy and their needs are changing consistently, then we have that capacity to add in extra input to their food prescription. In our care coordinator episode, we talked about teams that blend staff with different licenses and skills. Combining the two sets of expertise held by a nutritionist and a community health worker is an example of that. Natalie also mentioned two common obstacles to food and healthcare programs, which we've heard before as well. One is how to manage information sharing. As soon as we move from general food access to tailoring food to an individual patient's particular health needs, that shift brings in protected private health information. The second obstacle is transportation, an issue to which we dedicated an entire episode earlier in the season. Let's start with the information sharing. This is a really uh, a really challenging part of setting up these programs is being able to share information. We have a standard release form that we use to make community referrals. So that's that's one part of this. So patients kind of sign this allowing us to share certain pieces of information with our community partner. And then we have an encrypted document on an internal server that we're able to share securely. So it's an internal electronic system that's approved by our organization's IT. And we use unique IDs so that we aren't communicating directly patient names back and forth to maintain that level of confidentiality and privacy. There are other programs that we like to explore using that kind of help solve this question that allow a closed loop referral between a healthcare organization and a community organization to refer a patient and provide that information. And that goes directly or can go directly through the electronic medical record. And so there are some some probably better systems than what we've been able to do. But in pilot phase of what we're doing, we've kind of figured out a workaround using our internal systems to be able to share this information. So they've got a workaround. And how is that workaround functioning from the community partner's perspective? I think the communication has worked very smoothly. 
Um, that is one thing I was a little concerned about. Obviously, I am outside of the hospital environment and so not privy to as much information as, say, someone who is on the inside. Natalie does a prescription for a family. There's a process with an email that comes to just me at the Haven. And then I'm able to take that information that is limited, but has enough for us to do the prescription pantry and able to put it into our system so that when the client or Natalie comes to do the food pickup, we have no more information than we would for any other community member. It's been much better than I had anticipated as one would imagine with HIPAA and things. Another quick note on the information systems and tying to the medical record. This will allow more direct clinical connections, prescribing for a specific treatment and checking in on the results. However, the food prescription program right now is in much too early of a stage to start that evaluation. Instead, they're focused on working out logistics and measuring how patients perceive the support as helping them with food security. On to the topic of transportation. One baseline way to start addressing transportation barriers is to increase the amount of food provided in a given visit. In this case, it's about a shopping cart's worth and Natalie reports families say the supplies last for a while. But you still need to get people connected with that pickup. So transportation issues are a common issue for clients that we serve through our food program, whether it's the prescription pantry or not. We are very lucky in the Upper Valley to have Advanced Transit, which is a free bus service. It's a great, reliable resource for people. And one of the things that Natalie has been doing is matching up the pantry options for people with times that they're going to come to the hospital for visits. And so she will come ahead of their medical appointment, pick up their prescription pantry and bring it in a just-in-time effort. So right as their medical appointment is ending, she has the food ready for them to take home with them. Um, and, you know, if they're getting a Medicaid ride or a ride from a friend, so they're able to access it. The grant that supports this program also has some funding for transportation issues. So there are gas cards that were able to be purchased to help families that have a vehicle or a friends that could bring them to the food pantry. Then they have, I think it's like a $10 gas card. And with that, they have more capabilities to get there themselves if they have that option. And it also funds a little bit of my time. And so when I'm spending more time driving to the Haven and back to the hospital to coordinate with families that get Medicaid rides, for instance, to their appointments, it makes it so that is something that I will always be able to do during this pilot period, at least when there is that funding available. Another option, which is not part of this pilot, would be delivery to the home, or a blend of pickup and delivery. That delivery need comes up, for example, in medically tailored meals, where the amount of food provided is large, and also a high percentage of patients using the program are very limited in their mobility. Another element of home delivery, highlighted by programs like Meals on Wheels, is the overall benefit of having someone check in on you. For example, if we were working with older people living alone. Transportation barriers will be an important area of work in the future. We see a lot of ad hoc options popping up, especially during COVID-19, but they are often temporary, not designed to be sustainable or efficient. We also see systems that can be more sustainable, like the Medicaid Rides program, but they're limited in scope to medical appointments, not food appointments. Some programs, like Meals on Wheels, have a long history of using volunteers effectively to get food to thousands of Vermonters, but their funding source focuses on one particular demographic. There are a lot of starting pieces here that maybe, one day, can be pulled into a solution. I want to end on highlighting one last theme that echoes what we've heard throughout the series. 
the importance of community partnerships. We've looked at one small early stage pilot, but there are partnership projects flourishing all over the place. We're really lucky to partner with the Upper Valley Haven. I'd say that this partnership with our community is a really, really critical aspect of the program. We would not be able to do this on our own. The Haven sources and puts together the food, provides it to people. They're also just a really strong source of support in our community in general for addressing food, housing, and other social services. So really establishing and looking for those community partners who have shared goals, I think is a really critical part to having a successful program. So we've been partnering um, with Dartmouth-Hitchcock in a variety of ways for several years. We um, have one off-site location in one of their clinics over in Lebanon, their Moms and Recovery Clinic, where we have a small food pantry. Really, that was our first foray into working intensively with Dartmouth around food for their clients. We also have an emergency food box program that we do with Dartmouth Hitchcock in five of their different departments, including pediatrics, where it's about a two days worth of shelf-stable food that if a patient comes in and identifies that they have you know, an immediate need for food and they're unable to get to us or another charitable food provider, that they are given a box of food and then bird on to us or another food shelf if they don't live in our area. So thinking about the future, um, this is a pilot just with the pediatric department. And what I would love to see at some point in the future is this expanding to other departments. Children is a great way to start. Impacting a family is always better than impacting just one person in a household. But there are people that run the gamut of the healthcare system that could really benefit from prescription food. And I think it could tie in really nicely with registered dietitians across the hospital. Once things are proven to be effective or to have an impact on patients, to be able to look across gamut. And I know that really the the burden on that really falls to the hospital, but I would love to see um, this go wider. I think, you know, the concept that food is medicine, it's one of the social determinants of health. And if we can, as a community, provide more healthy food to people instead of more pills, wouldn't that be great? Those community partnerships and the structures that exist to encourage them will be the focus of our next episode, the grand season finale on the Policy in Plainer English podcast. <laughs>